I did not prepare a kid's quiz, I realized this morning as I woke up. So I apologize for that. But for anybody who needs to keep their hands busy in order to listen well, I have prepared an abundance of fruit up here, a still life, if you will. And if you want to draw that out, I would love to see your creations afterwards if that helps you focus. So that's all I can offer. I'm sorry today. Why? Oh, the dreaded question of toddlerhood. Once a child learns how to ask why, it's endless. Look at this video here. Get up, girl. Why? It's daytime. Not daytime, it's uptime. Yeah, it's uptime. You've got to brush your teeth. Why? Because you have morning breath. Why? Why what? No, kids can't have coffee. Why? Because coffee is for big people. Why? Because um, little kids can't drink it. It makes you too hyper. Why make me too hyper? Give me a little bit. No. Okay, uh, that was just through breakfast time. Oh, little Zoe's video goes on and on through the day. Let me tell you, it's a lot longer than that. But questions are how we learn. Questions indicate that we're in transit, we're moving toward a better understanding. And questions are the vehicle that gets us down that road a little bit further. Why? I really appreciate that the mother didn't say, because I told you so. When I realize now how much I did not know as a teenager and as a young adult, I wish I would have asked a lot more questions when I was younger. I would be so much further ahead now. So that would be my advice to my younger self, is ask more questions. And in fact, it's also my one go-to advice for parents because everybody knows how much parents love to receive advice from other people who are not in their shoes. They love this, check that out. Um, my parenting style changed from my first child to my second child, and I have already apologized to Lauren, my oldest, many times that I had to learn a lot of lessons on her. She bore the brunt of it, as do all first children. But with Elena, Instead of always having the answers and telling her what to do and when to do it and how to do it, which of course everybody knows I have that expertise and knowledge. Instead, I would ask her, well, what do you think? Or how do you feel about that? Or how can you do the thing that you want to do? Or what do you think we should do next? Things like that to try to help her to figure things out herself. And having parented both ways, I much prefer the questioning style. We're beginning a new sermon series on biblical questions. And we know that the Bible has answers, but the Bible also has questions, lots of them. And we're interested in looking at these questions ourselves and seeing what we can learn from them. 
If you were to guess, just off the top of your head, where is the first question in the Bible, where, what would you say? First question in the Bible, Genesis. You are brilliant. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. The snake, mind you, is speaking now, said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? There it is. That's the first question in the Bible. Uh, it's not spoken by God. We're going to come to a God question next week. It's not even spoken by a human. What a shocker. If we were reading this text for the first time, we'd have to like take off our glasses and see if our prescription was right, if we had read it right, because the first question in the Bible is spoken by a talking serpent. And by the way, notice that the serpent is put into the category of all the other wild animals that God had created. I'm not going to go down that path. It's just interesting. But this first question is masterful. It's not a yes or no answer. It will engage the woman in a conversation because now she has to explain to the serpent just how wrong he is. And she has some knowledge on the subject, so now she's involved in a conversation with the serpent. And look at the suggestion, the idea that is put into play here. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, how very, very tricky to suggest something that is not true by posing it as a question which gives the questioner cover. I'm just asking, dripping with innocence, that kind of a question. Once the serpent has said it, it lingers in the air, the idea that God would deny this woman and this man something of this bounteous plenty of juicy, delicious, mouth-watering fruit. What kind of a God is this who denies his creatures this blessing? The serpent could have said, look at this gorgeous, beautiful, bounteous garden. There is so much here. Did God really say that you, can only, you, you have to deprive yourself of only Two trees out of these thousands of flowering, beautiful fruit trees. Only two. You can eat everything here except for just those two little ones. See, that would be the opposite question, which exposes the motivation lurking behind the words. In the first case, as the serpent is insinuating, God is stingy. The other question would have implied that God is very, very generous. By the way, the serpent questioned both the man and the woman because the you is plural here. And not only is the you plural, but later in verse 6, it's spelled out that her husband is indeed with her. And so the serpent is looking back and forth at the man and the woman as he poses the question, which puts the intentions of God, the goodness of God, the generosity of God in question. Oh, this first question of the Bible is a clever, masterful piece of work on the part of the snake. Now, I happen to think that questions are good, and even questions that express doubts are good because they bring out into the open things that one is thinking secretly, and it in including questions ultimately doubting God, 
because we do struggle to understand God, especially when it comes to suffering or troubles or hard circumstances. We just can't figure out what God is up to, why God allows such pain, and questioning God when we are struggling is being honest. Mind you, that's not Adam and Eve. We're in no suffering place at the time, but Questioning God when we're suffering is being honest. And if we have honest questions, hard questions that we do not dare bring out into the sunshine, they just tend to fester and rot. This is one of the reasons we have Stephen Ministries here at this church. This is a way of, that we have of caring for each other as we walk through difficulties. And the person who is hurting can say anything, anything that they're feeling or thinking, no matter how scary it feels to say it or no matter how hard it is to hear it out loud. When we are angry, when we are low, awful things can come out of our mouth. And Christians have a tendency to stuff down the negative and hype the faith words instead. We can be experts at toxic positivity but those of us who have been trained in Stephen ministry believe that those negative things need to be expressed in order to deal with them. So the Stephen minister will hold and listen to those thoughts and feelings non-judgmentally, confidentially, while the person who is receiving the care is just sorting it all out, however long that takes. And the Stephen minister will pray and lean on God's presence and ask God for healing, and ask God for transformation, ask God for change, for peace. The Stephen minister will pray when it's hard or even impossible for the hurting person to pray, and all the way walking step by step with that care receiver. So I'm in favor of asking the hard questions, of asking questions that don't have a neat or easy answer, but are complicated and messy instead, because I think that only honesty can move us forward in our faith and deeper in our faith. But this first question in the Bible is not an honest searching question. It's a sneaky one. It's a Trojan horse meant to carry a disparagement of God, an accusation on God. It's a question that's meant to find its mark and to stick and to do damage in the process. It's meant to open a larger conversation which provides a bigger opportunity to the serpent. So in verse two, the woman said to the serpent, uh, correcting the question, we may eat of the fru fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, singular tree, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. Now the woman wasn't around when God gave this command back to the man back in chapter two. In Genesis two, verses 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And the you is singular there because the Lord is talking to the man, the woman has, isn't created until later on in that chapter. But in this conversation with a serpent, the woman shows that she understands the commandment and she even added a little extra to instruction to it to not even touch the tree. And people have speculated as to why she added 
this extra piece, it makes the, the prohibition more severe. Add one more no to the equation. And does that indicate anxiety over the consequence, which is death? Is that what that meant? Or confusion over the command? Or is it defensiveness? Or is it hyperbole? There are lots of reasons why she could have added to the command. If only she would have listened to herself. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a liar this serpent is, directly contradicting God. Now that's what I've always thought. But, but did she die when she ate the fruit? Were her eyes open? Did she gain the knowledge of the good and evil? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And they both immediately fell down dead on the day they ate of it. Is that what it says? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The serpent directly contradicted what God said in his original command but technically, the serpent was telling the truth. How sneaky is that? Technically, they did not drop down dead on the spot. Technically, their eyes were open to the knowledge of good and evil. Technically, most of what the serpent said was true. Mm, mm, mm. So where was the lie? The lie was the insinuation never said out loud, that God was holding back on the woman and the man, that there was something good, so very good, that God just didn't want to share with them, that God was depriving them because God wanted to hoard something for himself. The lie was the insinuation that the knowledge of good and evil was desirable instead of catastrophic. Now, I was at Costco, you know, where they have the double-wide um, shopping cart. And I had two little four-year-olds in my shopping cart. I know I have told you this story before. Two little four-year-olds, Lauren and her twin cousin. They were born the same day, hours apart. Lauren and her twin cousin. And I'm scanning the shelves to see what I'm... They're over here, I'm scanning shelves, and then I hear something, I whip around, and they were singing a Britney Spears song. <laughs> I'm not that innocent. And they did their, they did their little shoulders like, I'm like, what, what's with the, what, what, what's with the shoulders? I'm not that innocent. And I said, you are too, you are too that innocent. And Lauren, no, we're not, we're not. What is innocent anyway? Didn't know what the word meant. Kids, tweens are so convinced that the other side of innocence is so desirable. They want that knowledge very badly. And you cannot tell them otherwise. And then when they've crossed over that line of that knowledge, 
in their late teens, you hear them talk, it doesn't take long, you hear them talking amongst themselves. Oh, remember when we were in elementary school and things were so good and so simple? I wish I could go back. The serpent's lie was a smear on God's character that he's a God who withholds good because he wants to keep that good thing, the knowledge of good and evil to himself. So the serpent found the vulnerability, the point where humans don't understand the commands of God and hammered a wedge in there and planted suspicion about God's motives and God's goodness. Can we trust God when it doesn't make sense to us? God is holding something back from you, Eve, and it looks so good to the eye. Notice the language when it comes to describing that fruit of the tree. It was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and it brings about such a desired outcome, which is wisdom. This woman could clearly see all of that when she turned to contemplate that tree. Everything about it looked good, but God had said no. Now I put this cornucopia of fruit over here as a visual for us to contemplate as the woman had contemplated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of this is good fruit. There are no bananas in there. I personally believe that banana tree came as a result of the curse. That's my personal belief. Desirable, all of this fruit had to be desirable for me to be put it out. Especially the longer the sermon goes, the hungrier we get, temptation, tempting. So good, so desirable, so delightful. But God said no. Juanita Devon, honestly, I thought she would be in church this Sunday. Juanita, you should be here this Sunday. Um, she told, she's told us many times about her childhood in the rural south uh, and how her parents got each child an orange at Christmas time. They also got an apple, but I'm, I'm thinking oranges. Uh, a golden, beautiful fruit that was very special in the middle of winter to where oranges don't grow. I'm thinking of oranges because Pasadena and Altadena are historically orange orchard areas and so many of us have an orange tree in our backyard or we have one in the backyard of the church, as I call it, but it's really Peggy's backyard. <laughs> so maybe that fruit being plentiful doesn't tempt us, but what in your life does this array of desirable fruit symbolize? Because God will say no to something that you want. What tempts you to take it, to consume it, to have it for yourself when you know God is saying no to you? What is that thing? Is it sex? You know, that is a glittery gift that women and men, mind you, have not been able to say no to when it doesn't belong to them, when it's out of bounds. 
Did God say no to marriage, to children? Is it a shortcut to get to a desired end? The ends justify the means? Is it career? Is it money? Is it health? Is it something having to do with security that you want, but that is not yours to have, or that God, you prayed over and God said no to you? In big foundational matters of identity, security, well-being of the future, these matters strike to the core of who we are. And can we, can you, do you trust God to be good when he appears to be holding out on you? And you know he has the power to give you what you ask, but he denies you instead. Because God does indeed say no to us in matters that are really, really important to us. When he says that no, nope, that's out of bounds for you and you can't figure why. Is God playing with you? Someone once told me that was their idea of God, playing with them. Or does God have your best interests in mind? Is he still good? This is a question that occurs to people who are suffering. And especially if the Christians all around me are all telling me that God wants to bless, bless, bless me and only have faith enough and God will bless, bless, bless me. Can I trust in God's goodness when my life doesn't look that way? Or am I going to just take what I want because I want it now and I don't want to have to wait and I don't want to hear a no? God desires your deepest level of trust, which is faith in his goodness, no matter what. So let me personalize that. God desires, requires my deepest level of trust, which is faith in his goodness. Even when my eyes tell me otherwise, and we can't get to that deepest level of trust unless we have been asked the question by a serpent lurking in our lives or by our own inner self, did God really say no? Maybe it's okay just to take it. The serpent did not coerce the woman. He didn't entice her, he didn't twist her arm. He only uses words. The word of the serpent puts the word of God into question. There's been a lot of hatred directed at women on account of this first woman's active role in disobeying God's command. And we can trace through history, male fear directed to the female as the temptress, the seductress, the conniving, dangerous, not to be trusted character. A lot of terrible theology has resulted. One ancient rabbi said, a wicked man is better than a good woman. I cannot roll my eyes back enough because a wicked man is better than a good woman? Ugh. This rabbi speculated that Eve let the snake into paradise. 
and that she sprinkled poison on the fruit before offering it to Adam, which you see makes Adam blameless in the whole thing. But of course, the biblical narrative does not encourage that reading and it doesn't jive with the words that are going to come out of God's mouth when he speaks to them. So just notice that the man who was with the woman asked no questions, put up no resistance, considered no consequences, and she did not tempt or seduce or entice or fool or trick him. She simply gave it to him and he was a silent and willing partner. So they both ate, they both stood together as one flesh at that point. They used the freedom God gave them to determine that the command from their creator no longer applied to them, trying to put themselves out of creation. And no, they didn't physically drop dead the minute they ate the fruit, but they opened the door open the door wide to death and decay, which now permeates every facet of God's good creation. There was an immediate change in their relationship as seen by the shame between them that required them to cover themselves from the gaze of the other one. And then verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and the man and the, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There was an immediate change in their relationship with God, evidenced by their avoidance, distancing, hiding from God. I think about how often, every day I think, I ask God for his presence. And verse 8 makes me want to cry. To have the Lord God habitually, at the time of the evening breeze, take a walk in the garden and to be able to talk face to face and just have that companionship of God on the evening walk. How my soul longs for that. But the couple's sin made them hide from God's presence. God came looking from them at, for them, and they're the ones who hid, not God. And ever since, we have not been able to experience God's presence in the way they did before their disobedience. Forget the loss of the Garden of Eden. Doesn't it make you sad at the magnitude of the loss of God's presence? You know, I... Oh, wait, wait just a second on these. Sorry. I, um, I had a dream. I don't often, um, I rarely have dreams like this. But anyway, I was in the operating theater and there were a bunch of doctors and whatever. And they were talking about they're going to operate on my eyes and my teeth. And, you know, I think these are all insecurities that we know I have been through. And so then there was an elective little thing that they wanted to tag on to that surgery that I needed. And so they were saying, well, should we do this or not? You know, this extra procedure. And so finally they, they looked at me and they said, well, what do you want? And what I said is, I want a visitation from my Lord. I don't even talk in those kinds of words. That's nothing that I would say, you know, like that would come out of my mouth. But what, I wanted the presence of God. I wanted God to visit me. 
and be with me. Death came to the woman and the man that day when they first ate the fruit. Death seeped its way into all their relationships, human to animal, human to the rest of creation. Look at how we've treated our world. Human to human, human to God. Every way a relationship could be broken, it was. Okay, now show, show us the roses. The roses at the Rose Garden at the Huntington are magnificent right now. I went twice this past week because they were so gorgeous. And I cannot describe the sight. There are such different gradations of color. Each rose is immensely different from the other, but they're all roses. And the fragrance, so much beauty each step you take. But death bloomed in the garden that day. One person said it this way, we see the flowering of evil within the humanity of the man and woman because of their decisions and because of the devices and desires of their heart. We lost fellowship. We lost community, unity. We lost love. We lost companionship, we lost relationship, and we have struggled ever since to get those things back. That first question pulled at one little thread and unraveled the whole fabric of human life. Does it break your heart? We have used the freedom that our Creator gave us to determine that the commands from our creator no longer apply to us. We have used the freedom our loving God gave us to pull away from his presence. We have done this. I have done this. So I think it's only fitting that we bow our heads and we just have a time of silence to Maybe to lament, in particular, my way that I have pulled away from the presence of God, that I have decided that his commands do not apply to me. So let the Holy Spirit stir you in this time of silence. And we're gonna finish still with your heads bowed. We're gonna say the Lord's Prayer together. And when we come to the part where it says, forgive us our sins. We're gonna use the word sins there. We're just gonna say that. And then we're gonna stop right there before we continue. So together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Stop right there. Oh, 
forgive us our sins. You know what they are, Lord. You know what they are. Forgive us our sins. Okay, let's say that part again and then continue. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.